This episode of the Hunter Conservationist podcast is dedicated to the memory of Conservation Officer Ken McLennan and to all the active and retired conservation officers across Canada who are protecting the nation's fish, wildlife, and habitats 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So, how was your hot air balloon trip? Ah, well, it was on my bucket list for many, many years. <laughs> I finally got to experience it in High River, and it was fabulous. Um, everything that I thought it would be, and even more. It is? Silent, quiet. The views of the foothills and the Rocky Mountains in the distance. It was a clear, cool morning. Couldn't have been better. Wow. Off my bucket list now. It's fantastic. All right on. Yeah, it was great. So was it just like an up and down thing or did you I go was, from point A to point B? I or? was up in the air for an hour. So it was just the surrounding area of High River. Wow. Yeah. Wow. They cool. Uh, international competition, well, I don't want to do the competition, but an international display of um, these balloons. They've been doing it for about five years, I think, now. So did, it's become quite popular. Did yours have, like, was it like a big, huge, giant gorilla head or something like that? Oh, no, it was a perfect color, so it was very pretty. I had the pretty <laughs> balloon, and uh, the ride was very vigorous and uh, exciting. But my granddaughter went with me as well, and she just jumped aboard the basket at the last moment, and so that made it even more special for me to have her with me. Oh, I bet, I bet. Yes. Are you harnessed in on those things? No, or not at just all. You're just standing there, hanging onto the ropes, and that's it. So you have to pay attention and listen to the pilot. And the pilot says, just don't lean out too far? Exactly. Yes. yes. Yeah. I kept my eyes focused on the horizon. If I didn't, I was a bit dizzy. So, Wow. Yes, that's what I did. That's exciting. Oh, cool. Matt, Matt's yeah. is probably wondering, can I use that to spot deer in the field yeah. across from my house? Yes. If it's silent and aerial Quiet. view. Yes. Yeah, we could see so far. It, w- it was gorgeous. Wow. I recommend it to you, Mads. <laughs> well, balloon isn't on my bucket list, but skydiving is. No. For my 60th in two two years. <laughs> wow. I'd, I'd have to have someone attached to me, though, obviously. but just. I would have a parachute attached to me. Yes, a yes, that would, As opposed to a person. <laughs> and, and Those a, tandem and a jumps. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That'd be okay, because you don't have to worry about That's doing right. anything yourself, yeah. just, just screaming. Free falling. Oops. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. See, being retired and getting older can be fun. <laughs> there you go. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, it's Mark Call, your host here. And Gersal, co-host. And we are in Kimberley, British Columbia. It feels like winter. You got a few inches of snow. Yes, our yeah. early snowfall. And we're joined by um, Mance Byzantine. Hi. And Brenda McLennan. Hello. And... You were both married to our... Still. Still. (laughs) Conservation officers. Wives, yes. Yes. Game wardens. Yeah. The ones from the old school. Old school. Yeah. So did they prefer to be called game wardens? Because I know it changed. I think so. Paul Paul always uh, 
says, you know, I was a conservation officer, but really we were game wardens. And, and back in the days when he started in 79, they were game wardens. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't till what, probably early 90s that, you know, people kind of related them as COs, mm-hmm. not game wardens anymore. Yeah, there was a change in the language, and yeah. I think I think it was a fairly universal change across yeah. Canada, and I believe even Pretty some much. of the United States. They yeah. changed to conservation officers from. It just did, it was um, different for every province. In That's Ontario, right. he was the conservation officer. Yeah. When we went to the Northwest Territories, he was a resource management officer. That's right, and, and Al- it changed with the governments as well. Yeah, yeah, and in Alberta. Um, our son is a fish and wildlife officer, which is the equivalent to a conservation officer in BC. Okay. Because in Alberta, they have conservation officers, but they're more on the uh, resource end of it. Okay. And they work for parks, whereas fish and wildlife officers are like the game wardens. Um, right, right. Yeah. yeah. But in BC, they have right. conservation officers. Yep. In the territories, Ken was known as Umianaptic, which was the keeper of the game. Oh, mm. wow. Oh, cool. Huh. That's oh. very poetic. Yeah. Say that again. Beautiful word. Umianaptic. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, <clears throat> Brenda, your your husband was Ken. Yes. Yeah. I uh, I knew Ken. Um, I, I knew Ken and Paul from about the time I was 17. Uh, being like the small mm-hmm. towns mm-hmm. here, right? They knew my family mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Ken and my grandfather um, knew each other. My grandfather always talked about about Ken. And um, I think on one of the previous podcasts, we talked about um, when Curtis first started hunting, he wanted so much to be checked by a, by a conservation officer, right? <laughs> and uh, I, b- I bumped into Paul at the the gas station one morning and it's like, yeah. Paul, there's a young guy out there in the truck that's just dying to have his hunting license checked. <laughs> so I stayed in the store and Paul goes out and taps on the window. Oh, young man, you going hunting? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, so they, both these people knew my family and knew me through it. So I, uh, can appreciate what what you have to say because yeah it's been I've known him for for a long time as well so that would have been back in the 80s early 80s yep because Paul started in Invermere in 79 mm-hmm. and then uh, moved up to uh, in Invermere 79 and then 84 sorry 85 then up to Quinnell and then from Quinnell went up to Atlin in 91, and then back to Cranbrook in, uh, sorry, back to Cranbrook in 91, went okay. up to, mm-hmm. to, uh, to Atlin in uh, 86. Now, did you guys meet before? Before They're, Ken became? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, no, actually, it was the year that Ken graduated, 1966. He was a graduate in Huntsville, Ontario, and at that time, we called it Ranger School. So um, his first station was Kempville, Ontario, just south of Ottawa, and um, I was living in that area, and I was graduating that year and getting ready to head off to Teachers College in Ottawa. 
And I always remember Ken, one of his first assignments was um, when the Liberal government was in power with Pierre Trudeau, and <laughs> Ken was assigned to go work behind the Parliament buildings, and I believe it was on the the river behind the Parliament buildings. Um, Rideau. The Rideau River, Canal. and it uh, was spawning time, and Ken was asked, or stationed there, to, and I remember him going, you know, 24 hours a day, um, watching, watching the waters and the fish and keeping people away, and there was all sorts of action going on. And uh, yeah, he, he was so excited to be part of the Parliament buildings. And he, he, he several times he ran into Pierre Trudeau as Pierre would go checking and you know peeking down to see what was happening as well. So he, he had several stories there. But um, <laughs> yeah, that was one of his very first assignments in Kempville. Holy, wow. Yeah, goes what back a, quite a few years. What a, what a place to be yeah, stationed yeah. right right off Absolutely. the get-go. Yeah, yeah. What about you and Paul? Uh... We met, actually, the first time I met him, um, I'm a Canal Flats girl, and um, he just happened to be doing patrol in Canal Flats at night with uh, one of the RCMP. And um, yeah, we kind of met and asked me out for coffee. And actually, I don't remember this episode, but Paul says he actually came to our house about a year prior to that, because our dog had drug home a deer. And um, <laughs> I don't remember that, but Paul said it was. So he ended up uh, giving my dad a, a warning about the dog dragging a deer home. And uh, whether the deer killed, whether the dog killed the deer, I don't remember. And uh, then uh, my dad did the honorable thing and dispatched the dog. Jeez. <laughs> now, now, how did that play out when he came back to ask him for his daughter's hand in marriage? Uh, it was about three years later. I think he was okay with it by then. <laughs> that, yeah. that might have been, uh, might have blew his chances there. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah Hi, he, he I'd like to marry your daughter. Remember me? I gave you a ticket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I don't think it was a ticket. It was just a warning. Just a warning. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. But. So did, um, was there any like a uh, sales pitch or convincing or explaining like when, when they proposed like that they're. Oh, it was terrifying for me. I'll never forget the day I came from, a, I was a, a book reader and I wanted to be the t a teacher of course. And here was this conservation officer who um, had taken a liking to me. So we went out for a couple of years before we proposed, but I had never had had a gun in my hand. My uh, parent, dad was not a hunter. So that was a whole new world. And um, it was very surprising for me. I had, uh, wasn't an outdoors girl at that time, <laughs> but I quickly learned if you were going to <laughs> hang out with a conservation officer or a game warden, I guess, you had to, you had to be tough and you had to learn how to snowshoe, um, ride on sleds behind skidoos, and um, many things that I had never done before. So it was a new world for me. It was very trying, actually. But, um, and, uh, and especially learning a lot about the wildlife and the environment, as you had mentioned earlier. And Ken had a great, great passion for that. He loved to fish, and he was a loved to canoe, and he was quite an outdoors man. He knew from when he was a teenager or even younger that that's what the career he wanted to, to um, attain to. And um, 
So he followed his plan and his path, and then I just came along, and he always joked and said, hey, I was the only girl that he ever dated that could read a book, so he wanted to marry me. (laughs) 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 Which came in really handy when we went to the territories. (laughs) Wow. Oh, that's neat. So is that that where you first moved, where he was first stationed when, when you got married? Yes, yes, we were in Kempville, right? Yeah. Okay. And in, I was trying to think, we were married in 69, so about early 1970. Um, and I thought we would stay there forever. It was a beautiful area, and uh, we would both have good futures with our jobs. And one evening we were sitting and we were watching the debut of The Great White North, the show that Walt Disney had just put on, and you know had our first TV set, and we were, he was fascinated by the polar bears. And... Um, he became quite entranced with what was happening in the Northwest Territories. And I'll never remember, forget, the show was over with, and he turned and looked and he, at me and he said, would you like to go to the Arctic? And, um, of course, being young and adventurous, we, uh, we, I said, yes, why not? And they have teaching positions up there, right? And the next thing I know, he was sending off, getting, receiving some information on the Arctic and... Uh, Within two months, they flew us from uh, Ottawa to Winnipeg to interview Ken, and they hired him on the spot that weekend. I'll never forget that. It seemed to happen so fast, and um, it was a rigorous interview. It was probably two days of interviewing because they were opening up positions in the territories as resource management officers for the very first time. So there were several positions that were available. So the Ken, um, there was a good indication that Ken was going to um, have a job opportunity, but there was one, um, they said they needed to meet the, the wife to see how she would handle situations because it was living in isolation. And so they wanted to make sure that I would, you know, be suitable, I guess, to live in isolation. And that's when learning, knowing how to read a book was yeah. a good asset. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, they actually interviewed me. I'll never forget some of the questions they asked and... Uh, um, and at the end of it all, they said us uh, that we were both suitable. So away we went, and we left. Uh, I finished teaching then the end of June, and we headed up to Frobisher Bay in those days, it was called, and then from Frobisher Bay on to Pond Inlet, and from Pond Inlet on to Resolute Bay. Uh, s- spent two years in Resolute Bay, but Ken's area also went to the Greece Fjord. His designated area went right to the North Pole, actually. So in 1972, we had the opportunity to fly up to uh, an island that at that time was more or less floating around (laughs) the North Pole, and it was called TC3 Island. I'm hoping I remember all my facts. I don't have my diary in front of me. And it was also the centennial year for the RCMP. So our good friend, he was a single RCMP from Saskatchewan, and he was living in Resolute Bay at the time. And he had just gotten engaged to a girl from Summerlin, B.C. And um, the RCMP were involved in the wedding to the fact that TC3 Island, because it was floating, Canada, I guess, at that time wanted to claim sovereignty with this island. And in order for sovereignty to be claimed, I believe we had to have a judicial act performed on the land. (laughs) <laughs> so the long and the short of it was this couple were getting married on the island. So the RCMP came and the inspector and the pilot and um, we loaded up on the plane. Ken became the best man and I was the maid of honor. We quickly flew into this island. Nobody 
there were some weathermen on the island from the States. There was an American weather station. They did not know we were coming. So we uh, flew into this island. We landed very, very quickly. Um, the RCMP inspector got out and, what ha and had a conversation with the six weathermen that were at the station at the time. And we were allowed to go into the mess hall to perform this wedding. Now you have to understand that these gentlemen that were there had no idea. Surprised to see the plane came to see you know, the RCMP come out with their uniforms and then a bride and a bridesmaid stepping out and uh, it, it just floored them. I always remembered one man was running to get to the to get to his satellite radio so he could contact the states, I'm assuming the president, to see what was going on. But, um, but anyways, we, um, we performed the wedding there. They let uh, the bride and I go into the mess hall and they came in and of course there was vivacious calendars all over the wall and they hung the Canadian flags everywhere. And we performed that wedding within 20 minutes and we were out of there, back on that plane and flew back to Alert, landed in Alert, I guess, to fuel, and then back to Resolute Bay. And it happened in just you know, a matter of hours, and it, it was incredible. And I do remember when we got to Resolute Bay, they, um, the RCMP called um, Pierre Trudeau at that time to let him know that there was now sovereignty to that island, I'm assuming that's worded the right way, and yet that it was all over with, yeah. So that wow. was quite, quite the event. <coughs> wow, yeah. played played a role in a historic yeah, did. moment did. in Canadian yeah. history. RCMP Centennial Year. Wow. So there must have been some really like off the wall things in the Arctic like that. That every day, <laughs> absolutely. Um, it's like Ken, it's like uh, this is your job, but yeah, then there's all yeah. the other things you do when you're there. Exactly, and I was. That's why I. I realized I needed to keep a diary for myself just to record the weather and the events and the people that I was meeting. It was very different from what I was doing. Ken fit into the um, community very, very easily. He was accepted easily. He was a very gentle soul. And mm -hmm. I think they realized that. And um, he right away, he was um, asked to go on trips with the um, Inuit and sometimes you never got asked to go on trips, but it didn't take very long, and they assessed him, and uh, and he would be on the sleds and out on the pack ice, and he'd be gone. And uh, it was wonderful to see that um, it was almost like a dream coming true for him. And now he was living in the high Arctic and working with all the animals that he never thought he would ever see, let alone be up there to protect. Musk oxen were important to him. And so there was that, that um, protection section of, a, of of his job, I guess, that he did. And sometimes he'd be gone for a couple of weeks. I wouldn't even know where he was. Really? Of course, you've got to remember, we had no mm -hmm. TV, no telephone, nothing in those days. Um, so it was, yeah, I just, I, I read a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky I had a teaching background, so I was welcome into the schools and uh, worked with the children, and then I started some adult education programs as well. And um, and because I was still young at that age too, I was only in my you know twenties. I was very open and maybe too risky sometimes too. We probably took some chances and did some trips that, if, when you, in hindsight, we would have to be more cautious about it. But, um, but you we were young. You wouldn't allow your kids to do that nowadays. <laughs> exactly, man. Yeah, oh, many trips I can remember. Yeah. Wow. But uh, it was all worth it. Yeah. Oh, oh that's wow! Good. That, what an exciting place to to go. Mm -hmm. Now, where, where did you guys first move to? 
Uh, our first posting was uh, Invermere, actually. Paul had uh, moved out from Manitoba because he'd been a conservation officer in Manitoba for three or four years and then was transferred to Invermere. And uh, that's where we met in Invermere. And he was there uh, from 79 uh, till 85. And then uh, we got transferred to Quenal. And uh, yeah, in Quenal, of course, um, once we moved there, you know, it's kind of you're leaving your family behind, right? I mean, it wasn't that far away, but still you're, you're moving away. So here I was with a new baby and a uh, new husband. And uh, yeah, you, you know, you make friends with, uh, with um, the other conservation officers and the fish and wildlife officers, and you kind of tend to hang out. And we were there in Quenelle for uh, three years, four years, and then we transferred up to Atlin. And to get a posting in Atlin, you, you have had to have uh, plaster mining, um, enforcement okay. and being that <clears throat> we were in Quenelle, he had that through Barkerville and then got of course transferred up to Atlin and uh, Atlin was considered an isolated posting <laughs> and um, I remember we uh, each of our children were born in different cities so first one in Invermere second one in Quenelle and Holly our youngest was born in Whitehorse oh. and uh, it was an isolated posting and you don't realize that uh, we moved there in October. Well, by the end of November, it was dark <laughs> at three o'clock in the afternoon. I remember I, I, I was, was stationed in Atlin working one summer when I was about 17, 18. And it was light all day. Yeah, I remember it was the longest, is it June? June yeah. 21st, the yeah. longest day summer of the year. Summer solstice. Yeah, and I was uh, on the edge of the lake and uh, sort of looking um, south, southwest over Teresa Island. Yes. The moon was coming up. Yeah. And it was a full moon and the sky was all blue and there's this big reflection across it's beautiful. The, the lake. And then you looked um, to the north towards the Yukon and the sun was still on the sky and it was setting and there was this big yellow and orange reflection on the lake and it was yeah. literally like you just stood there, you could see both the moon yeah. and the sun at the same time. Yeah. Um, but then as soon as that day turned, mm -hmm. like the next night I went down there and it was like yeah. there was 20 minute time difference in yeah. the, the rise and, and uh, setting of, of, of yeah. those. So, yeah, but it, I, it, I know what you mean when it was isolated because you, you drive all the way down the highway from yeah. the Yukon yeah. and there's like nothing there's and then there's this little like shack on the side of the road and you drive by it yeah. and then you go another 10 kilometers and there's a little shack on the side of the road. Yeah. And so finally I asked somebody, I'm like, what's with the little shacks? And they said, those are emergency shelters. Mm -hmm. Cause if you break down on that road in That's the winter right. time, someone else might not drive by for two days. That's right. And so you get to one of those things and there's provisions mm -hmm. to, but yeah. it's the end of the road in Atlin. Yeah, yeah. I, it was funny when you were asking about how Paul and I, uh, you know, when we first started dating and got married. So when him and I first started dating, um, we went to a movie called Never Cry Wolf. And that was the first movie we went to. And I remember him telling me that he says, one day we will get posted in Atlin. And he says, I'm going to work there. And this is like, what's the show got to do with it? Well, the film was made in, um, in Atlin. 
that movie Never Cry Wolf, where the guy falls through the ice, mm-hmm. that's on Surprise Lake, just as you're coming into Atlan. So the whole movie was was filmed in Atlan with all the wolves and stuff. Huh. Yeah. So it was really coincidental when you were talking mm-hmm. about, you know, Ken wanting to to go up north. Paul had said the same thing about going up to Atlan. And uh, it was considered an isolated posting. And uh, yeah, it was, um, I remember our children went to school. Holly started, or Laura started school there. And um, there were a lot of First Nations kids. And I think there were only six white children. And the rest were all Native, Native children. And um, they, uh, yeah, all the, all the white children were, you know, either RCMP children or teacher's children or forestry or yeah wow yeah wow we were up there for five years so were you interviewed too (laughs) no no we weren't interviewed but um yeah it was definitely uh uh let's just say when you're in an isolated posting it's uh it tests your marriage because it's it's dark like it's it's dark in the winter time and you really have to build up your community thing. So I, um, I uh, at the time I worked for customs. Um, there were aircrafts coming in from Alaska coming in and then I'd meet them at the airport and clear them and what have you. But, um, you know, I started a daycare and I ran uh, a figure skating thing at the local hockey rink and Paul and I got involved in curling and you know, every week there was a dance at the at the local hall, so we all took part. And just you know, you just have to jump in and become part of the community. Right. Yeah. Right. Because otherwise, you just sit at home and you know. But it was fun because we got to spend lots of quality time on, like, on the summer solstice. Everybody would go out onto the lake in their boats, and I remember packing up the children and bringing beds and you know the bedding and supper and. And then we just went out on the boat and bring in the summer solstice, and you knew, like June twenty second, the days were getting shorter. <laughs> and when December twenty second came, you were thrilled because you knew that the days were getting longer. Get, getting longer, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's so much romance to the north, right? But yes. it's those are two things. Mm-hmm. Well, two things is the darkness mm-hmm. that yes. people probably yeah. don't realize, and the fact that winter mm-hmm. is. Like so cold. nine months in a year. Yeah, the sun went down in November. We didn't. We'd always have a coming up party in February when the sun mm-hmm. came back up. So we kept as much lights mm-hmm. on as we could in our settlements in the winter. Yeah. But in the daytime or in the summer, when it was twenty-four hours of daylight, mm-hmm. we would put tin foil on our windows yes. so we wouldn't know night from day. That's right. We that did. was that was one of the biggest yeah, issues. Yeah, we had to do that too with yeah. our children. Yeah, at close. three o'clock in the morning, the yeah. Inuit children were out playing yeah. in the front of our house yeah. and. Um, it, you just so you went with the flow. You yeah. had to learn that you couldn't have an eight to four job. Mm-hmm. Um, you just went with the flow and did what the community did. Yeah. Wow. School rem- would shut down earlier because it was trapping season. Yeah. And, yeah. I remember the the first year we moved there, um, I had planted a garden, started a greenhouse, and you know, being from the Kootenays, you you know, <laughs> you start your plants in the greenhouse. You know, March or in the house. You know, usually end of February and then you move them into the greenhouse. We had this greenhouse and oh, it cost me so much money in propane trying to keep the heat going in that greenhouse. By the time I got to plant them, you know, everything was pretty big, but my vegetables were so expensive. And I remember we were working out 
outside in the yard. It was probably end of May, early June, and uh, we were outside playing in the yard, and the kids were so cranky, and I'm going, okay, like, why are these children so cranky? And I'm still waiting for night to come, and I looked at my clock, and it was like 10 to 11 at night. Mm-hmm. But my kids were still outside because it was light out. Because it was so light out. Yeah. 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 So then we realized yeah. we realized why people had tinfoil in all their windows. Yes, yeah. I can remember doing picnics. We yeah. had our parkas on and we'd go on picnics at midnight because yeah. it was just fun to do. Yeah. And you wanted to take pictures and say, guess what we're doing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Funny. I have a story about Matt. This is, I don't know if you remember Matt's, but um, when I... When we were stationed in the Western Arctic as well, so we were stationed in what, Fort McPherson for two years, so just south of Tuktoyaktuk, and uh, so we were in the Mackenzie Delta area, and so you were in Atland, but Dr. Roger Mitchell was That's in right. Atland. That's right. He delivered so, my baby. And, well, that was the story I was going to tell. <laughs> so small world, we all ended up in Cranbrook, and Ken became very good. So by now, Dr. Mitchell's retired. And Ken and him became quite good friends. They played hockey together and whatnot. And uh, and then one day, Mance's name came up, and then we realized Roger delivered her baby. So we were just laughing how the world comes around and yeah. all the connections that we have. Yeah, we have, he had, have quite he, a bond with the people in the north, don't we? We keep. We do. We keep yeah. in touch. You know, you um, um, you know, you send them Christmas cards and what have you. And and I'm not one for. Um, social media, but um, a few years ago, decided to do Facebook like most people. And I'm just amazed on how many people from Atlin that I've reconnected with that we hadn't kept touch with, but yet our kids, you know, grew up together and, you know, we all had babies around the same time. And it's like, okay, I wonder where they are now, right? And uh, you just touch base again. Some of them are still up there. Some have moved on. And, mm-hmm. you know, most of them are grandparents now or whatever. And and it's just like, you know, it's nice to touch base and, and see where they are now. And and some people even moved out and then they moved back up there again. And, yeah, there's something about the north. It pulls you back. And yep. Uh, yep. we would love sure. to go back there and, and uh, you know, fish. Yeah. Especially for char, Arctic char. Yeah. There was nothing like Arctic char. That reminds me of a story. So I remember one day we had gone out on our first trip with the local Eskimos, as they were known in those days. And uh, so Ken had a big canoe, a canoe with his kicker on it. And so I had, and by then I'd had my first daughter. Angela was uh, was just almost a year old then. So I had her in a backpack or in a Mautic I was wearing. Um, that's what the traditional Eskimo women carry their children in. So I had her in the Amautic, so we were in the the canoe, and we were going out to some open water to go fishing for Arctic char. And when we got, and so several of the Eskimo families were going too, and when we got there, we all got out and started to walk, and they told us to stand here and fish here and whatnot. And um, so I was standing on this little piece of ice, and I had a fishing rod in my hand. And my where I was standing broke away from the the big part of the ice. So all of a sudden, I realized I'm on the Arctic Ocean, floating on this little piece of ice. It was about 12 square feet, I guess. And then I I turned, and there was Ken on the the mainland or the big piece of ice, I guess it was. And I know his heart was just pounding, but the Eskimo people were calming him down and saying. 
it's okay, it's okay, don't worry, she won't fall, she's going to be fine, and it's just going to float to the other side and we'll get her, which eventually it did. <laughs> but it's just that, you know, the moment when mm-hmm. you realize you're just on a small piece of ice Floating. in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. Oh. I never forgot that. Wow. Mancy, we're talking about gardens and growing food and that, and that was <laughs> such a, a learning curve, I think, for all of us. For myself, um, we only had a... Uh, a boat, a vessel that came into our settlements once a year. I had to learn. So the first year, we didn't get there in time to put an order in to have our food order come up for the year. Mm -hmm. So we lived off of um, a dew line um, order. I guess that's what they would in, so back in the late 40s or whatever. The war radar installation site. Yeah, that's the rations that I had for the first year. And um, so I can remember when I got there in our little house, they had uh, two of these big boxes sitting there and uh, I remember opening them. It was canned butter and canned bacon (laughs) and biscuits. Yes, yeah, lots of that. Yeah, Yeah. what were the biscuits called? Um, I don't know. It'll come to me. But anyways, so I remember putting all that on the shelves and I thought, okay, I've got the basic supplies here. And then seal and caribou and the Arctic char is what what our our substance was as far as food. And um, so that's what we lived off of. But by the second year, I was able to get my order out. So I had to, there was a few... I was lucky. There was always Mm -hmm. a a teacher in the settlement, a a white woman. And I was able to go to her and and learn how to make an order. And um, so I'd have to order all my supplies Mm -hmm. for the year. Everything, everything that I would need for the baby or myself or for cooking. Um, Yeah. So and it was the order always went to Mm -hmm. Woodward's. I always, yeah, we always wondered who it was. Going you know, where the wow. supplies came from. Yeah. And it was Woodward's out of Edmonton, I believe. And yeah. somehow everything got <laughs> shipped to Montreal, put on the barges, and mm-hmm. up they came. Wow. Well, even up ship, in Atlin, yeah. uh, there was a few committees that you, if you wanted specialty stuff, you would put in an order. And uh, uh, one of the companies was Frabies, so you would order all your cold cuts and your cheeses and stuff like that. And if you wanted it for Christmas, you'd put in your order like in October or whatever. And um, because in Atlin, like, there was a grocery store, but it was very expensive. I remember that first year we were there. I think I paid $5 for a head of lettuce and, and uh, a tomato, I think, was $2. So, I mean, it was, you know, um, it was that much more expensive to, to bring fresh fruits and vegetables in in the winter. And uh, being that we were up in Atlin, every relative and and every friend that we had wanted to come hunting up there (laughs) and uh bring food yes we told them if you're coming up you bring us fresh fruits you know or um uh stuff that had bulk like canned food because it was expensive to bring all that stuff in eh? and we had to pay for freight so after a while people just knew like if you come up you bring you bring stuff mm-hmm. up here because, I mean, it's not that Atlin is that much isolated, but it still took you three and a half hours, four hours in the winter to get to Whitehorse to do your one month, you know, groceries or whatever, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, growing a garden in the summer was a challenge, but when things started to grow, it just grew like crazy because it was like 24 hours a day till, you know, and, um, yeah, things, like, I was amazed what you could grow in the north. <laughs> <laughs> so do you remember, do you remember the things that Ken and Paul were doing at work? Like, what were, mm-hmm. yeah. 
what yeah. were their yeah because you know one of the one of the things I remember and, and I did I lived a couple couple summers in Dees Lake you know like oh, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. you know not too far and I remember the RCMP officers that were there um, they were sort of there for presence for law enforcement in the community but they never really quote unquote did law enforcement mm -hmm. and I remember about once a summer um, detachment officers would come up from Terrace and it was like if somebody did a rolling stop at a stop mm -hmm. sign, bang, they got it. And it was just like, mm -hmm. and then they were gone. But the people that lived in the community, the officers that were there never, cause it's just so small and mm -hmm. isolated, right? They couldn't, they couldn't really, you know, sort of do those, those, that sorts of mm -hmm. sorts of things. And was it? Oh, very much so. In fact, it, um, our friends were always the RCMP mm -hmm. and luck. I was lucky if one of them were married yeah. <laughs> because then I thought I'd have a friend as well. But um, so often they were single gentlemen that mm -hmm. were stationed in the Arctic. <clears throat> but absolutely, Mark, um, I, there was a lot of um, danger in losing the population of the musk oxen and the polar bear, um, the white fox and the wolves in our part of the Arctic at that time. And I think that was a, a you know the premise of what a lot of Ken's work was going to be. But he was very cautious about that. He knew enough to sit back and learn um, from the the um, hunters in the settlement. And then, as I mm -hmm. said, he was lucky. He was accepted easily. And then when he started getting invited to go up, trapping became a big issue because at that time, there wasn't um, the rules and regulations, you know, that you might have had a little further south for hunting and probably weren't enforced or they didn't even have the mm -hmm. same set of rules up there and the high Arctic, and I, could, I can remember a lot of European, especially from Germany, people coming over, and hunters um, for hunting for polar bears um, was very common, but it wasn't um, perhaps being done in the correct way or being overkill, um, so that was a big issue, and of course, the protection of the muskox. So um, Ken was, I remember him um, spending a lot of time you know, learning about that and trying to explain forming a hunters or trappers organizations, which never would have taken place up there in the high Arctic before. So there was the teaching of, um, you know, management and harvesting and the protection of the environment as well. Um, and that was something that you just didn't happen overnight. That mm -hmm. took a lot of time. You had to find the right leadership in the communities, you know, who the hunters were, who the elders were, who you could talk to and who you mm -hmm. couldn't talk to. So, and... Yeah, that, that was mm -hmm. a big part of yeah. living, you know, with the Indigenous folks up there. Mm -hmm. And One a little bit of a, a sort of a clash of worlds, right, to mm -hmm. sort of the Western concept of wildlife management mm -hmm. and, right. you know, that sort of thing mm -hmm. colliding sort mm -hmm. of like mm -hmm. with traditional sustenance hunting and... You know, Absolutely. sort of thing. Yeah. So that we were there when the fa for last family came off the land, and that was south of Little Cornwallis Island. And I remember National Geographic being part of that. Um, we were there. We were there for the last of many things. So that was just those early '70s, mm -hmm. and after that, it was boom. Technology hit the communities. Everybody had a TV. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, phones, people started to have phones yeah. in their home by then. And uh, yeah. so that that's the changing of that world. So we were lucky. We were there for the end mm -hmm. of the old of the old part. And uh, I, so I remember in Atlin, we uh, um, even up there, Paul st still had the uh, single sideband radios. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you needed to get a hold of someone, 
you just went on a single sideband radio. And I, I remember sometimes um, the whole town of Atlin was on a generator. And uh, you could bet that on uh, Thanksgiving Day and Christmas Day, the power would go out because everybody was cooking their turkey and it would use up that much power. But the single sideband still worked. And um, sometimes we turn it on at night. And I swore you could hear, like, people in Russia because they were talking totally different language. Yep. And then people in, you know, where... I remember that up there at nighttime yeah. when the yeah. sky was clear. The yeah. signal just bounces. Yeah. Yeah. And over. you would have, like... like 2,000 radio stations, like yeah. if you're dialing yeah. through yeah. Oh, in the yeah. daytime, yeah. you're lucky if you could pick yeah. up one or two. Yeah. So. We listen to Greenland all the time when yeah, we were exactly. in Greece Fjord. It yeah. was closer, and the people yeah. in Green in Greece Fjord were yeah. cousins to the people in the nearest right. community in yeah. Greenland. In fact, we were there once when they, uh, it was an annual dog trip when the ice was frozen, that the people from Greenland, well, the people from Greece Fjord, so it would be vice mm -hmm. versa, but they would bring their dog team over, mm -hmm. and several dog teams, and they would yeah. come over for a visit, yeah. and I can remember being there, and um, they were all dressed in their white yeah. polar bear clothing, and uh, all of a sudden they arrived, and everybody was cheering, I had no, Ken and I had no idea what was happening, but it was their cousins or their yeah. friends arriving from <laughs> Greenland, wow. so that was really something. Wow. Yeah. So so it was was Atlan similar in the sense for Paul, like kind of the community dynamics the and and sort of the yeah. cautiousness of being like probably the only officer there. Right? He was the only conservation officer. So I mean, um, like Brenda said, like your friends and your coworkers were the RCMP for backups and vice versa, because a lot of those isolated posting are just one man district, even for the RCMP, right? And so they really counted on each other for backup or what have you. And, um, you know, Paul would uh, would do a lot of uh, uh, trapping patrol where, you know, he'd get on the skidoo and take off for two or three days in the wintertime going checking trappers that, you know, were out in a, out in a bush. And, and sometimes we didn't have no radio contact or anything, right? So, um, you know... Um, a lot of these trappers did have radio to, you know, to call into town or whatever, single side bands or whatever they had. But if I hadn't heard from him, I'd usually, you know, phone the, the local RCMP and say, can you phone, you know, can you phone this trapper and see if Paul's made his check or, you know, just to, to make sure he was still alive. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because, you know, they take off in the wintertime on Skidoo and... You know, sure, he brought, you know, provisions and a sleeping bag and a gun or whatever, but you never know, right? Right. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, um, even when I married him, I, I mean, I knew what a conservation officer was, a game warden, but it wasn't until, you know, we had been married for a few years that I realized that, you know, they are often out in the bush by themselves mm -hmm. with no backup, and back in those days, I mean, they were lucky if they had a radio. Um, you know, there was um, even satellite or whatever. Like, they'd go out in the bush and check. He says the worst, you know, the worst fear that he had sometimes is, you know, you drive into a guide outfitter's cabin or, or a, uh, a hunting camp, and they've got all this meat hanging up, and these guys are drinking, and they've got guns, and, you know... Here shows up the game warden, right? Like, I mean, there's no one around. Yep. Right? Yeah. So it kind of, you know. Well, there's all the 
the the Klondike stories of you know exactly. the North and the Mad Trapper of so River and all that kind of so stuff. So easy plays to get rid you. of them, right? Like, mm-hmm. but you know, you yeah, just no, usually no, come. he never showed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, right? So, um, you know, I on those days where you know he would go out checking hunters at night or whatever, even when he was doing the uh, checking ling fishermen on Moya Lake at night, like. I mean, you never know. He's walking across the ice. They don't know he's coming up to them. I mean, you fall through the ice, right? Like, yeah, yeah, because the ling fishermen would cut the big, the yeah. big holes in yeah. the ice. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and that's an interesting one too because I remember as a kid uh, when when they were issued their sidearms, mm-hmm. like up until. When, do you remember? Like they were, they were not. They did not have sidearms for a uh, long time. We came in '77, and he didn't have one at that time. And it really, well, I, shortly after that, I remember him carrying a sidearm. Were you seeing? Yeah, I think. But because he did a lot of undercover work then, mm-hmm. and that terrified me. When we came from the north to Cranbrook, he was sort of the new man on the block, and so he and he had been trained in uh, some undercover work. And so quite often he would just disappear and I would get a phone call from his, perhaps his boss saying, well, Ken's going to be gone for a couple of days. And I had no, and by now I've Mm -hmm. had my second little girl and uh, I had no idea where he was going Mm -hmm. and it frightened me. I was very nervous. Um, I was new to Cranbrook at that time. And um, yeah, there was lots of times when I didn't know where he was and when he was coming Mm -hmm. back. I had no idea he'd be all over the province. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's an interesting story because yeah. I don't think that's an aspect that people mm-hmm. realize that yeah. there is mm-hmm. undercover work involved. Yeah, in yeah. like yeah. even in Quinnell, yeah. he'd say, you know, I'll I'll be gone. I'm not sure when I'm going to come back. Like it might be tomorrow morning, it might be tomorrow afternoon. And um, I says, well, can you give me a, like who do I contact if something comes up? And then he just you know, write down a piece of paper or get a hold of this guy if, you know, if I'm not back by a certain time. Well, you don't sleep much. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You just... Was there ever a point where you were kind of like, okay, you have a family at home and these kids and it's like, we need... Yeah, we missed missed a lot of birthdays and Christmases and um, we got married in the fall. All three of our children were born in the fall. <laughs> Hunting season. <laughs> Hunting season. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, like, um, you know, it's it's only a day. In, looking back now, it's only a day in the calendar. But at the time, you know, I mean, you know, they, they like, he always came home with stories. I mean, that's what I love about him. He always had stories. Like, he'd come home, tell me stories about all kinds of stuff. I have to tell the story um, when we were going out. No, I think we'd been married a year or so. He was checking a, <laughs> a fisherman out at Whitetail Lake, and that's actually where we got married. And um, he had checked this older gentleman uh, a few times in the past and always had given him a, a warning. And um, this one day, he was uh, this older gentleman was out on the, on the lake fishing, and he just, he was way over his limit. Like just, Paul thought, okay, that's it. You know, I've had enough. And um, <laughs> he uh, gave him a ticket 
and took his fish away. And um, before he checked him, he says the old man was looking over the boat. And uh, he had his fishing rod and he was trying to hook something. And Paul thought, like, what's he doing? <laughs> the guy had sneezed and lost his teeth in the <laughs> lake. And Paul, Paul said, serves you right, I hope. <laughs> I hope you, all you brought to eat was steak and corn on the cob. <laughs> but, Here, and here's a, here's a ticket to boot. Yeah, here's a ticket. <laughs> Lots of stories yeah. about issuing tickets, right? Oh, I, I remember many too. I, Mance and I were chuckling the last time we were talking with each other, but all the telephone calls, oh. in, especially when hunting season would start, our phones would ring 24 hours. Oh. Um, and that's Even just, still, yeah, Paul's been retired the way five years we still get oh, calls yeah. um there's this one time i i uh we got this phone call in the middle of the night and paul was i think he was on a course in victoria or something he was not around and um the phone rings at three o'clock in the morning like i mean it's never a good feeling when the phone rings at three o'clock in the morning and it's either the dispatcher saying that, you know, something's happened or it's bad news, right? Um, so I get this call and uh, this fellow, I could hear music in the background and yelling and shouting and partying. And this fellow says, uh, a Cranbrook fellow, he says, Paul around. And I says, no. Um, he says, well, I need to talk to him. He says, um, we're having a discussion on... Uh, hunting regulations and we're, uh, we're, we're trying to find out the, the right answer to the, this regulation. I said, are you blankety blank serious? It's three o'clock in the morning. I have to get up in the morning. I have kids take to school. No, 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 I, I need the answer right now. Where's Paul? I says, he's not here. So I hang up, he calls back again and he says, we're having this argument, it's a bet. I need the answer to, to this regulation. I thought, oh, you... Anyway, so the next day, <laughs> I think it was on a Saturday night, so Monday morning, um, I uh, had to drive my children to uh, band practice, which is at 6.30, 7 o'clock. I knew where this guy lived. I came knocking at his door at 6.30. I literally banged on his door. He comes out of there in his pajamas, and he goes, who the are you? And I says, I'm the CEO's wife, and if you ever phone my house again at 4 o'clock in the morning, it's going to happen again. And he goes, I didn't do that. I said, yes, you did. And he goes, oh, no. So anyways, wow. two days later, he came over and apologized to Paul. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, but like, we were always getting calls about regulations. and. So yeah. was your was it they're, they're phoning your home number because oh, they knew oh, it all the was time. your home, the office? No, at home. They would phone at home. Yeah. Like we would get probably, oh, like phone at least once a day, if not twice oh, a day. At least. Yeah. It was um, when we first came in the 70s, that, like Ken would be on 24 hours. Yeah, like, that's the same no with Paul. Hours. You just, you were a game warden seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I, I remember our two girls, eventually they became teenagers when... Um, and the phone calls that they used to have to take, mm -hmm. um, and some of the messages, some of the notes that they would leave for Ken for a while, we saved those because they were hilarious. Like at 10 o'clock at night, there would be a message from Chief called, 
Ken, please go to such and such a house or go to this lake. Mm-hmm. Or, and the girls would write down these messages. But um, <laughs> safety, for, I think, I don't know about, I'm sure, Mance, with your children as well, there was always a safety issue too about the, the girls. We taught, yeah. Ken taught them a lot. And Yeah, don't, don't, tell you, don't tell them where I am. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. You know, like they'd call and say, where's your dad? Well, he's working. Well, where is he right now? And they'd say, well, we don't know. You want to talk to my mom or whatever, right? But they, they got to know that, you know, dad wasn't around and take a number and he'll call you call you later, right? Wow. But definitely a good influence on the children, right? Like, oh, I mean, it just, sure. Paul used to come home with, you know, baby deer in the back of his truck and like live ones or whatever, right? Or baby bears. And, and when we lived in, uh, in, um, in Atlin, um, I remember him, um, I don't know how he ended up getting this this bear, and uh, we had a, a baby bear in the basement for a week, you know, just just until the, the uh, rehab center could, you know, mm-hmm. come and get it, or someone could take it up to Whitehorse or whatever, and uh, it's, it's yeah. pretty neat. I know, we had baby two deer. little polar bear cubs yeah. then, they were the first ones that I had to look after, and... Um, in one of the camps in the high Arctic, the mother had been shot, and so they brought the cubs back. Or Ken was able to mm-hmm. go out and rescue the cubs, bring them back, and then we had to keep them for about four or five days until there was a plane that flew mm-hmm. into Resolute Bay, and those two cubs ended up at the Calgary Zoo. Mm-hmm. And we knew that. We knew that's mm-hmm. where they were going. And I always remembered we went out a few years later, and we went to the mm-hmm. zoo to see them. But those cubs, I still have yeah. pictures of them. Those cubs were yeah. at our house for uh, maybe a week or so yeah. before they actually flew them out. Wow. I don't know how many yeah. fawns we've we've had at the house, like while our kids were growing up, right? I mean, you know, a doe gets hit or whatever or shot, and the you know the 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 fawn is left by itself or or baby elk or you know a calf or a calf moose, and uh, you know they, he'd just bring them by the house and just keep them until you know they could get picked up and, and so when when they get hired for these jobs <laughs> the family gets employed by the sounds of it <laughs> absolutely it's all one mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah. The, i think the most calls we had about about like to contact our husband was always about regulations eh Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Wanting, wanting clarification on the hunting regulations. Yeah, read the book. Yeah, read the book. <laughs> but I mean, they are hard to understand sometimes, right? But um, Or how to fill out certain applications and stuff like that, right? Wow. Yeah. So, that, that, I mean, it's interesting. You said once you're a game warden, it's like it's 20, 24-7 kind of thing, right? So how, how was that life for your kids? Like, was it just... Well, as they, as they became teenagers, mm-hmm. I think, is when the impact would start, um, mm-hmm. or, or when the, the children realized, um, well, I had two girls, so the girls would be dating local boys in town. Well, they were all hunters in Cranbrook, of course, right? <laughs> so you talk about the core programs, and yeah, well, my dad knows your dad, and you're a hunter, yeah. and oh, well, yeah, I remember yeah. you, because you taught the core program. And uh, so that was just something that this was mm-hmm. a very, you know, the, the Kootenays mm-hmm. is, is quite mm-hmm. a population of hunters, of course, yeah. or outdoor enthusiasts, even. So yeah. your girlfriend's and dad does a background check oh, on you before yes, you. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
absolutely. Yeah. And I have to say there was probably a few, I think of one of my daughters was sitting here right now. She would tell you about a few bush parties that would happen and probably a CO truck would show up with yeah. the lights yeah. on, <laughs> checking on everybody. But that kept yeah. that kept everybody on track. Hi, Dad. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> yeah. wanted, everybody, like our, our kids grew up hunting too. I mean, they've been hunting since they were, you know, three, four years old. We'd take them out hunting. Paul would take them out hunting. And and um, as the kids got older, um, all of our kids' children always wanted to come hunting with us, right? Because we were the hunting family. And, you know, the parents knew that it was safe to send the kids with the game warden because, <laughs> you know, they went out hunting, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, they always had friends to go hunting with. But uh, we, you know, we... We didn't take too many of their friends because just it was always, you know, one-on-one or, you know, you just have a a little bit more time to spend with them hunting. I mean, you don't take a bunch of kids hunting, right? But um, um, Dogs were always a big part of our life. I remember when we first went to the Arctic, we actually were allowed to take one dog with us. So we we had two Irish setters at the time. Um, So we took the male, Mike, the huge Irish setter, to the Arctic with us. And I remember landing um, and this dog getting off the plane with us and we were just kind of walking along the ocean front. And it must have been breakup season because I can remember just ice along the edge. And then all of a sudden, many little um, Eskimo children were coming from all different directions and all they wanted to do was pet this Irish setter. And I wasn't quite sure what was going on. And uh, the dog was loose, of course. And uh, finally, one of the uh, gentlemen local people interpreted to us that the kids were all rubbing their hands together like this so if the dog died they wanted the fur because none of them ever had red fur for their mitts <laughs> they hadn't seen an Irish setter before so it said we gotta look after our dog all, Keep all, it. so that dog all the became white and gray you that's tell. right yeah. some of the kids wanted to have some red mitts so we had to keep a close eye on our dog actually the dog became quite well known in the community yeah. and was a favorite in the eastern Arctic and I can remember the first day there was a whale that um, the hunter had shot and they brought it up to the shoreline and I think I was subbing at the school that day and uh, the kids all went running out at recess and I thought where are they all going and they were going down to the waterfront and they took their ulus out of their pocket and they were slicing off the some blubber. of the whale meat that was that was their treat that was their their snack they were having and all of a sudden the dog showed up and the dog was climbing up on this dead whale so there was pictures of the Irish setter <laughs> and kids with their ulus eating them <laughs> It, it was quite something. It was, well, I'll never forget that day. Yeah. It was uh, yeah, we, part uh, of it. We had, when I first met Paul, he had a, a German Shepherd, and she was actually a, um, a working dog for the CO. And oh. um, it wasn't a CO service dog, but Paul um, had trained this German Shepherd to detect, um, you know, meat and, and uh, poaching cases and what have you. And, and she was really good. Like, her name was Joni Barr, and... Um, she, uh, yeah, she he'd take her to work all the time. And, um, you know, at home, she was the friendliest lap dog. But, boy, you did not, when he put her in the, in the back of the truck, you didn't even go by that truck. And he'd take her out in the bush and, and uh, got a few pinches out of her because um, a couple times he checked a bunch of people doing firewood. And underneath the firewood was, you know, a dead doe or something like that, right? 
and uh, and then Joni Barr made it all the way up to uh, Atlin. Mm -hmm. She was in Invermere, and she was in Quenelle, and and uh, passed away up in uh, in Atlin. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she was she was part of his his work. Like she went to him with him to work every day. Oh, dogs! Wow. The husky dogs were important in our life because in the Eastern Arctic, we had anywhere from five to seven huskies at all times because that's how Ken's mode of travel was. Mm -hmm. So he would have a dog team and those dogs. So he would build a comatic. He learned how to build a comatic because in those days he didn't use any nails or screws. It was all done with um, the wrapping, wrapping um, the seal skin, mm -hmm. slim the lines around it. And um, the same thing with your lines out to your huskies. So everything was fan style, hitch style there. And then in the Western Arctic, we probably had five to seven, usually seven there, because the dogs, of course, mm -hmm. were all in a straight line and you were using a sled there. And so those were the kind of artifacts that you would learn to, you know, you had to learn to do what was being done in the community and to travel like mm -hmm. that. So um, that was one thing Ken was always very ardent at doing. And um, so, yeah, dogs were always a part of our lives. And for me, the biggest thing, and I have to say, I didn't always like it, but I remember having those five-gallon pails. I'd have to put them on my stove. And in the wintertime, we would fill that up with, heat the water up mm -hmm. and throw in a bunch of oatmeal or whatever Ken yeah. was telling me to throw in there and fish heads. And <laughs> then he would carry this down across the road to feed all the dogs. And we would um, put up probably, oh, I don't know, maybe a five or 600 um, dried fish and from Arctic Red River, and we'd hang those up to dry and stack those up to feed in the wintertime. Feed the dogs, to yeah. Feed the mm -hmm. dogs, yeah. Wow. So that, that was a major part of our mm -hmm. lives, was looking huh. after the dogs. Well, yeah, that, when, That's old school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 that's what we did. <laughs> Very, though. wow. Even in Atlin, though, there was uh, there were mushers there, like, uh, you know, the celebration. There was quite a few people in Atlin that, that did mushing, and, you know, um, one of the trappers actually used dog to, for his mm -hmm. trap line. and Rather than and, a snowmobile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, every year the in celebration, Atlin Day, I think it was end of February or March, and uh, I can't remember. I think they called it Rendezvous Day or something like that. Anyways, um, they had you know, mushing races uh, across Atlan Lake. It was, it was neat. Like it was yeah. neat to see that because, you, you know. Atlan, Atlan Lake is British Columbia's largest freshwater, freshwater lake. lake. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. Cause Williston mm -hmm. is impounded. Yeah. 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 It's humongous. It's, oh, it's beautiful up there in the glacier and Llewellyn Glacier. And, oh, it's just amazing. It's just really, really beautiful up there. Now, what, looking back on what what the guys did, from your perspectives, what would you say are the things that they loved most about their job, most rewarding, they loved the most? I think I forgot a component of Ken's job that I should tell you about in the Arctic, too, which we weren't really expecting when we got there. But there was a lot of exploring, exploration camps going on. Polaris, for instance, there was a lot. There was some oil rigs going in. There was some mining going on, and the land was being uh, left just strewn with garbage, and and a lot of disruption was happening on the land. So that was the other component, the enforcement part of his job yep. that I hadn't talked about yet. And I can remember him getting um, there'd be orders from down south, so um, somebody in 
Frobisher Bay would be contacting Ken and saying, you know, you need to hire a helicopter or a plane and you need to fly into some of these camps because we understand they are completely destroying the, the land there. I had an opportunity several times to go in with them and I couldn't believe. I remember very distinctly flying in and Ken always had his camera with him to take pictures and it, they would just be garbage everywhere. The camps were, um, there was no regulations around the camps Yeah, at that those time. were the days where the mining oh. companies would fly everything in, yes, camps, yeah. vehicles, yep. tractors, boats, mm -hmm. fuel drums, yep. and then it's like... It was so sad to leave. see. Yeah. Then just yeah. Yeah. pulled people out and left mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so a lot of... Um, so he did enforcement work with that type of thing, going and taking pictures and recording. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the court cases would follow and things follow up like that. So that was the enforcement part of the work. But then there was always mm -hmm. the animal part and mm -hmm. the protection part, the... Mm -hmm. um, management part, I guess. Yeah. And that was completely different. So I can remember so many times I thought how the variety of the work, which mm -hmm. made it so interesting for them, though. Yeah. Um, I, and I think just to add on to it, I remember in the end, Ken's last probably five or six years of working, he um, very much fell towards the protection of the land environment part of it. He became very concerned about what was happening with the ski hills or um, some of the pulp mills pulp and mills. the big sites, he, the mines. So he he became, did kind of, he was focused yeah. on industrial Yes, he became the environmental investigation yeah, officer right. and he worked very closely together with a, with a lawyer out of Kamloops and they were very successful in many of their court cases for the very first time mm -hmm. having a lot of the um, penalties going mm -hmm. back into paying uh, funding back into compensation for the animal life or the fish or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that was very rewarding for him. I always remember him, you know, saying what mm -hmm. a big change mm -hmm. he had gone through his careers mm -hmm. and ended up realizing um, as you mature and get older too, but seeing what was happening with the lands and what was happening even in this area in the Kootenays and um, uh, it, it was almost like a, a moment of revelation for me when I realized that he was, his, uh, he was going into second gear almost, and he be, it became very important to him that, um, that these lands be protected and cared for. And um, the day that he retired, um, and I thought that our lives would, uh, we were doing a lot of boating before that and things, and the day he retired, he said, we're selling our boats and we're going to just canoe or sell anything that had to do with oil going into the water. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think he ever hunted again after that. Mm -hmm. um, he just put everything down and he said, now I can rest and now I can be at peace and now I will take pictures. Wow. And so he just, uh, yeah, that, that part of his life had ceased and he, uh, he had seen so many wounded animals and mm -hmm. um, there, yeah, there was a lot of sadness to, yeah. to the work yeah, that they would do. Yeah, that's the same with Paul. Like he yeah. just, he hated putting animals down um, you know, shooting bears, and of course, you know, they get such a bad rap for shooting bears and, and, um, you know, wounded animals and what have you, and highway accidents, and highways, and, yeah. and, and what have you. But, you know, you do the, you do the honorable thing, put it out of its misery, right? And, um, that was always kind of like the downside or whatever. But on the positive side, he always, he always went that extra step to, um, you know, if he was checking a hunter or whatever, you know, explain why why there was an infraction, like 
what were you thinking, that kind of stuff, you know, and try to reinforce, you know, like think before you act, you know, if, if you're going to shoot an animal that's, you know, eight miles away, make sure you can take it out, you know, yeah. like you don't, just because you see it and you hike in for, you know, 20 miles, you better make sure you're able to to bring it out and, and, you know, he always, he was fair, they always, you know, talking to people now, he was always the fair conservation officer and he always, you know, he he was good to the hunters and, and the fishermen, but I think he was always educating the public on the laws and why they have to be abided. Yeah. And I guess that's the that's the prevention protection component, right? Yeah. Is if you can you can stop something from happening versus reacting exactly after the fact. Exactly. So. And and you know, um you know, I think you know, I'd say probably ninety nine percent of the SEALs do have a very good reputation and it just take one's one of them to to make seals look bad and um you know he always he you know paul has always had a really good rapport with the hunters or or you know the outdoorsmen in general right he loves people and i, th- he I loves think people. that's he loves paul loves people he loves loves talking people talking and, to them yeah. and and stuff and and I think that was probably a big asset. Yeah, you know, yeah, for like him. he, you know, he'd go out in the bush and and um, you know he he loved his job. He'd get up in the you know in the morning and and take off and and he'd come back at the end of the day and he had you know checked fishermen and hunters and and just. It was almost like socializing, wasn't it? <laughs> like he'd get story out there. Story after story. Yeah, story. You know, he'd go into a hunting camp, and next thing, you know, he's sitting down having supper, or going to a guide outfitters camp, and you know, he's having meals with them, and sitting with the hunters, and you know, he, he like people love <laughs> conservation officers. Like they're they're people. You know, they're normal people. They do have lives, and and um, you know, they just. They go out there and do their job and, and, you know, some of the stuff they leave at work at the end of the day because they don't want to talk about it. But some of the stuff he'd come home and, and we'd be at, sitting down at supper and he'd tell the kids all about their stories. And, you know, he's such a good influence on our kids. Like um, our son's a fish and wildlife officer now. Both of our daughters are police officers. And he actually more or less talked the girls out of becoming conservation officers. Um not because they wouldn't fit in well, but because, um, you know, the, the safety end of it, you know, a, a woman on her own in the backcountry checking, you know, hunters or whatever, you know, the, I think it was more like the safety aspect of it. Right. Um, no backup, you know, in those, you know, even 15, 20 years ago, there was no backup. Yep. Right. I mean, even today, most of them. Mm-hmm. Well, you on know, most your, your daughters are routines. Yeah, they they officer. work mm-hmm. work on their own. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, um, um, looking back, they they all chose good careers, um, and and uh, but definitely had a good a good influence on on mm-hmm. the, the lives of our children, and um, you know the the time that that was spent with the children, whether it was hunting or fishing or, you know, going 
huckleberry picking or whatever, like nature stuff. Like the kids remember that. Like they all remember their first deer. They all remember their hunting trips with dad and, um, you know, their fishing trip and, and absolutely yeah. Yeah. It's, now after now after paul retired he kept hunting probably went hunting more can yes. you said yeah you said paul, had a different different paul says i've got yeah. 35 years of fishing and hunting to catch up on <laughs> and believe me that's that's what we've done like just about every day um is fishing and hunting and fishing and hunting and and but now that he's involved with ducks unlimited of course mm-hmm. that takes a little bit of time a little away, bit more but, time but, but but he he told me an interesting story on that one is is he got involved after retirement with mm-hmm. ducks unlimited to give back. and and to give back like yes. he he I, and i believe this is how i understood it is he felt a component of what he did with a job mm-hmm. was not impacting wildlife but the fact that there was a component mm-hmm. you know of putting animals down and right. you know these sorts of things right. the problem bears you know the, the, the whole thing right that being involved in ducks unlimited and wetland and waterfall conservation mm-hmm. was like a way of kind of for him i Redeeming. guess <laughs> yeah or balancing that right and exactly. in, a, in a way giving to back. give back mm-hmm. um so that that's mm-hmm. a very very kind of interesting yeah, and and you find that a lot in in retired conservation officers. They, you know, after they retire, they they tend to get involved in different venues that that relate to the environment or wildlife or or um, protection of mm-hmm. the environment in some way, right? I can remember when Ken became involved. Um, after retiring in Ducks Unlimited as well. And I often, the neatest part about being the game warden's wife, it's often we could jump in the truck with them. Not so much, maybe that I know, doesn't it really was happen fun. today, it was but fun. in the olden days, yes. oh my gosh, I helped with migration counts and everything else. Yeah. Many stories to tell there. But I do remember even with Ducks Unlimited and Ken going out and uh, he was um, in control of the gate out near Cherry Creek out on the hillside above Bummer's Flats. So several times I would go out with them, especially in mm-hmm. the fall. It would be so beautiful mm-hmm. to go out there. But I remember one evening we were just sitting on the hillside and we were watching the geese and the mm-hmm. ducks fly in. And um, and there was the, you know, the, the water flowing mm-hmm. through the little canal system and we could hear all the ducks and calling. And we looked out at the mountains, mm-hmm. the Rocky Mountains and Fisher Peak, and it was like heaven. Mm-hmm. And he had this motto was uh, a peak a week. He liked mm-hmm. to hike and climb a little bit. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah, then we still have the sign here out in our backyard, yeah. Peak oh, a Week. Peak a Week, that's the, cool. Yeah, a Peak a Week. And <laughs> there, but there we were sitting and just looking over this whole valley of mm-hmm. Bummer Flats there. And it had, I, it was so, mm-hmm. so beautiful, so peaceful. Yeah. And he said, this is what life is all about. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember in Atlin, we, uh, we'd take off on the boat sometimes in the summer and he'd go and check some fishermen, but I, I'd still go in and in the boat and do patrol with him and you know we'd get a sitter for the evening for the children and and we'd go out and check some fishermen on on the boat and uh you know you're just kind of sitting in the water and it's like like you kind of sit there and go what are the poor people doing like like this lifestyle um you know they they kind of set their own schedule you know like if the kids at a, a concert at school during the day you know, he was able to go to the concert during the day and then start work later, as long as he put in his time, which, I mean, they put in so much overtime, you know, they just, they just put in so much overtime all the time, um, you know, 
in the fall you've got hunting. Um, usually all the court cases and what have you are like January, February, but then you also got the uh, cougar hunting during that time, right? And then, of course, then you start the fishing and, you know, it goes on. But, um, you know, he, he would come to the children's concerts and, and kind of work around some of their schedule and stuff like that. And um, it was pretty neat. I had a daycare and um, he'd come home for lunch and, and I remember all the kids running out to the truck to see what kind of dead animal he had in the back of the truck, whether it was a bear or a cougar or whatever, right? Huh. Like they used to just run out there every day and see, oh, what did you, what did you get today? What yeah. did you kill today? Or, you know, was this animal shot and laughed? And, you know, kids are curious, right? Yeah, kids are curious. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember, I remember one of the last times I saw Ken uh, at work. Um, might might have been a few years before his retirement, I don't remember, but uh, I was with my wife and we were doing some glassing from, from a road over on a hillside and there were some guys down the road that were also glassing the same area and they came up and said, I don't know if they asked if we had a radio or, or what, but they said they just watched a guy on the other side shoot a sheep, like a, a, a ewe. And it was late season, sheep were closed, ewes weren't even open. And um, there wasn't really anything I could do. And like, by luck of the draw, like half hour later, whatever, Ken comes along. And he stopped and, <clears throat> you know, how you doing and good and everything. And it's like, these I just said, these guys down the road just said, like, they watched some guys shoot a you across there and he's like oh really so he went down and talked to them and then he came back up to me and he said well i'm gonna go over and there was a road closure gate there and uh, i remember the summer job that i had uh working for uh the forest company there that i had keys to the gates to be able to get in to do forestry work so i said well I'll come with you and because I might have a key that would open the gate and uh, I didn't. So uh, we walked in the whole, the whole way and uh, found the sheep and stuff. And um, he did all of his field assessment work and he took, um, took one of the horns off and um, chopped it off or whatever. And he said uh, like, they'll take that because if they have to, they have a sample, they can pull something off to do a DNA match if need be. So we walked back out and he just said, I'm going to, I'm just going to wait here till dark because there was a couple tr pickup trucks at the road closure gate. And he says, I'll, I'll just wait here. And as the hunters come out at the end of the day. And so we, we headed home and it was uh, several months later uh, in town. I bumped into Ken again and uh, it was at my grandfather's funeral. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were coming out the door and, you know, and said hi to Ken and he shook his hand. Sorry, sorry about your grandpa and stuff. And he goes... And then he goes, I caught those guys with the sheep. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah. He says, uh, eventually the last group of guys that walked out, you know, um, I sat each one of them down in the truck and mm -hmm. they said that they did. They were from the coast and they thought it was a mule deer. <laughs> and when they realized it wasn't, they just kept yeah. walking and, and, uh, but it, but it was it, the interesting and the point of that story is is like it was important um, for him to like close the loop mm -hmm. on somebody that was kind of involved, mm -hmm. right? Like it was, 
it was an important part of what they did is to be able to, when they could talk to people and right. say, this was the outcome. Mm-hmm. This is what happened. This is how your contribution helped yeah, or whatever, the, because the feedback that, I think was really important. Like yeah. Paul would do that all the time. Eh? You know, if someone phoned him with a tip, or whatever, of course he investigated and then he always called them back and thanked them for helping out. And, and, um, you know, the guy ended up being charged and kind of, like you said, finished the, the story, right? Mm-hmm. Like finished mm-hmm. the, the investigation. And, and and I think living where we did too, Ken was involved in some big cases mm-hmm. from the parks and the states as yeah. well. And I remember him traveling back and forth and having to make court appearances. And these are some heavy duty yeah. cases, you know, yeah. sometimes it took more than a year to settle yeah. them. And yeah, I know Paul two had years, a, but um, yeah, the follow through and those were yeah. those were the interesting cases. Yeah, yeah, I know but. Paul had a really, really big case in Atlin, and uh, I think it went over a period of a year or two, and it was a, a big in, international poaching case and what have you. And uh, he was away a lot and lots of investigation and what have you. And and um, you know when it, it was finally over, actually the the case the the court case was in Atlin, even though it was a lower mainland case, um, you know, at the end result was really good. And, and um, it was a really good, it was a, an international case and, and it was really, really good. Well, that's wow. the variety in the jobs, right, Mance? I mean, yeah. you went from just walking down the street and checking a fisherman to yeah. an international case. Yeah. You never knew. You never mm-hmm. knew. He never knew when he came home or <clears throat> when he picked up the phone, you know, what, what was going to be next. Was that part of the the attraction of the career? Oh, I absolutely. think so. Yeah. You yeah. never know. Sure. You know, you never know what you're going to be dealing with that day. You know, I mean, a lot of it is routine, you know, hunting checks and fisherman checks. But, you know, you... you you know, you check a hunter and you, they, I don't know about Ken, but I know Paul always, um, you know, he said, I've had grown men cry and say, you know, like he'd say, it was funny because with Paul, he, he never really lost his temper or whatever. And, and if he, if he knew the guy, whatever, he'd always say, I'm really disappointed. Like, and boy, they felt like they were like, two feet tall, like, hmm. like, what were you thinking? Like, I'm so disappointed that, you know, you made this judgment call. And sometimes they're mistakes, but, you know, sometimes they weren't. Just poor judgment. Yeah, just poor judgment, right? And um, uh, he's had grown men, you know, literally cry and say, please don't tell my wife. <laughs> you know, I've already spent, like, thousands of dollars on... <laughs> Hunting gear. And now, now I messed yeah. up. <laughs> now I'm gonna have to pay another two thousand dollars for every hunting season. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Now, but, lots uh, of stories. Now, they, all the officers seemed to be close. That was this true after retirement? Oh, yeah. Like, like the CO family yeah. is unbelievable too. Because when I'm duck hunting with Paul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, his phone's always ringing and it's always like another seal. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, and, I'll and tell you, th- like, I think he's still a mentor yeah. uh, to some of the guys. And then, you know, he's like, yeah. And then they're kind of talk yeah. and shop yeah. or whatever. And then all of a sudden he's like, geese are coming. Got to go by click. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, he just hangs up yeah. on him because yeah. yeah. we hear yeah. some geese. Well, we are always, oh, coming. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. So like, um, like seal families, you kind of like, even though the wives don't know, the other wives 
or their children, because they're all over the province or what have you. The, the guys kind of all know each other. And, um, you know, if, if something happens where one of the children is traveling through town and they break down or whatever, like yeah. there's this one incident where this one seal lives up in Williams Lake and his son was uh, going from Williams Lake to Alberta and he ended up breaking down in, in uh, Invermere, I think, or something. And, and uh, his car needed to get fixed or whatever. Well, yeah, like we didn't know the kids, but you know what? Stay at our house for the next three days until your vehicle's fixed. Or, you know, like that's the one thing. If, if something happened, you know that you can always phone a CEO in town and say, you know what? I'm such and such guy's wife and um you know we taught our two help. girls that yeah. yeah so they would be traveling back yeah. and forth from yeah. old's college yeah. and we always said if you ever have a breakdown yeah you phone a quite seal. often ken yeah. would say here's the nearest seaho just yeah. give them a phone call yeah exactly or bc yeah. because yeah. we're all we're all there to help so yeah, yeah exactly they all, always knew that yeah. yeah yeah and same with our kids yeah. like you know if something ever happens you feel like you're you know mm-hmm. you're you're needing help or whatever just and I still stay in touch with um, many of the mm-hmm. wives yeah. that are left out. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't realize how many um, of the CEOs have passed away. We just lost Mary Vanamaniak, which was a and wonderful. And we just lost Higgleson. Bud Ellis. And, yeah, and Bud last week. Um, mm. You just shocked me. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but um, yeah, Mary Vanamaniak had been a McBride for many years when Ken was in Prince George, so mm-hmm. we were close to that family, and uh, so we still we still have that mm-hmm. contact, yeah. and that's nice to have. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's wonderful. Yeah, even heritage. even the retired CEOs, like we still hang out and and mm-hmm. you know do stuff as as you know, like celebrating the. 80th birthday of the secretary. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Joe so can say that the secretary and the seal had been together more than most marriages. <laughs> yeah, they used to say they used to, the seal service started in 1905, and they used to joke that Arlene, who was a seal's secretary for yeah. many many years here in Cranbrook, was born in 1905. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of jokes. So That's we just funny. celebrated yeah. her her birthday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. So what? Um, what advice would you have for spouses or partners of conservation officers now? It's it's different because there's there's women officers now, um, so it's it's a different situation. So the technology's so different, mm-hmm. though, Mark. They're all four-year students. Most mm-hmm. of the, a lot of them coming out of BCIT mm-hmm. or Lethbridge, and um, they're absolutely a mm-hmm. different crew. They're a different yeah. make. Um, you know, after four years of, of studies, and then mm-hmm. you're going to go out and be a conservation officer. But so you have, I think they handle mm-hmm. the cases different. I think the children or the, the students, I should say, the grads think differently. Mm-hmm. But look at the technology they have. So a lot of they don't have perhaps the issues mm-hmm. or the drama or the lack of. Um, yeah. That our husbands, you know, they had very little. They Be, just being had out of to, touch for two weeks at a time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they just had to wing it. I mean, it was trial and error. Mm-hmm. But it's not that way anymore. You've got you've got a cell phone. You know where everybody is. Mm-hmm. You can text. You can GPS. Mm-hmm. You know where they are at all times. Yeah. It's it's a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So I would I would think that the students, the grads now, mm-hmm. have been when they're doing their studies, are looking at the environment in a different way. Yeah, mm-hmm. they are. And, yeah, a lot um, of. You know, not a lot of them, but I'd say maybe a third of, of the new conservation officers that come out of 
of Lethbridge College or Nanaimo or wherever they do their schooling, a lot of them have never picked up a gun. Yeah. A lot of them don't hunt. A lot of them don't know an elk from a moose. <laughs> you know, so it's it's very different. Mm -hmm. um, but the advice I, I would say to you know spouses of conservation officers is you know what just be there for them at the end of the day you know they come home whether they've had a good day or bad day whether they want to share their day's work with you or they don't you know just just be there for them you know they come home and and maybe they've had to put down a you know a, a sow and her cubs are left there or something right or they've had to to deal with a bad hunter or or a fisherman or you know a big mm -hmm. environmental yeah. spill or whatever you know what just just be there and listen you know don't don't judge and don't criticize and don't you know where were you you should have been here an hour ago you know it's it's their chosen career nobody is forced into going into that career they choose that career and um, they choose it because they they love what they do and uh, you just need to be there for them, whether it's, you know, whether they've had a good day or a bad day and, and um, you know, make, make life at home as normal as it can be, you know. Yep, yep. And that's... My advice is to travel, because if you have a background like that, mm -hmm. and your husband is a resource management mm -hmm. officer, game warden, mm -hmm. or park warden, whatever mm -hmm. it may be. Or your wife uh, now. Yes, yep. yeah, we live in this opportunity of uh, beautiful mountains, and mm -hmm. we have considered Australia at one time, because mm -hmm. the diversity of the land down mm -hmm. there and the animal life, and yeah. I think it's, uh, if you have that opportunity, <clears throat> go for it. Paul's well, bucket yeah. list is to go shoot... Uh, um, Snow goose up in the Arctic. <laughs> That's on his bucket list. There go you as go. far high as he can go. Maybe he needs a hot air balloon. Yeah, <laughs> maybe he does. <laughs> <laughs> I know they've been to Yellowknife, the I hot think, air balloons. I, think an, but, I, know, yeah. I know a contact he can talk to about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Definitely um, on his bucket is, list. This has been a great conversation. Um, I really want to thank you guys for opening up and sharing these stories and thoughts and what it was like being married to conservation officers, game wardens, mm -hmm. old school. That was the best part, was the old school. Old school. I really, I was, do, I really do think, and that's why Paul and um, Ken always hit it off so well, right? From the beginning, yeah. I think they knew that they had uh, so much in common and well, understood the, I, each other. I think other. the isolated postings yeah, sure. and, and um, you know, back in the days, they were game wardens, you know? They were just game wardens and... And uh, they just loved their jobs for for what it was, you know. And and they they had our support. We sure ate a lot of road kills, didn't we? We did. <laughs> <laughs> and the secret to that was having us pressure cooker because I could put any kind of roadkill in a pressure cooker and I could eat it with a spoon. <laughs> he says. He says. Um, What's Paul saying? You know how a mechanic always has the worst vehicles and a plumber has the worst plumbing? And he says, one thing about conservation officers is, he says, if you can't feed your family off a roadkill, you're not a good seal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. that's funny. So yeah. they, they got an opportunity to uh, write a book or whatever on... Yeah. On, uh, I, yeah. Road roadkill cuisine. Yeah, yeah. How to how to, f how to feed your family on a conservation officer's budget? Oh, That's yes, funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Thanks again so You're much. Welcome. Uh, wonderful stories. Uh, I hope, uh, hope listeners could sort of get a better insight into the life of a conservation officer as seen from their spouses and maybe, uh, have a little different perspective when one does come up to you on a lake in the middle of the night. They're people with spouses at home and families, and they love what they do. And I think, Mark, I want to thank you very much Mm -hmm. for this, too. I didn't realize this is that you and Curtis would be doing this, but it's important that our children and our grandchildren were aware. I'm looking Mm -hmm. at my grandchildren now, Mm -hmm. and the oldest is 20, and... um, I, I need them to know what their grandfather did, and this will be part of it. Mm-hmm. This is an amazing new piece of technology again, just doing all of this online and Facebook or whatever it may be. But um, And I think they're at the age, both my girls now are in their 40s, and they love to hear stories about what their dad mm-hmm. did. They recall, of course, many things. But um, yes, I think it's important that we pass this on to our yes. grandchildren. Well, it'll be on, on record for, for your kids and grandkids. Thank you you for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll see the rest of you on the next episode.